Welcome to NYU Langone Insights on Psychiatry, a clinician's guide to the latest psychiatric research. I'm Dr. Thea Gallagher. Each episode, I interview a leading psychiatric researcher about how their work is shaping clinical practice. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Petros Livonis. Dr. Livonis is president of the American Psychiatric Association and a leader in the fields of addiction research and LGBTQ mental health. In our conversation, we talk about his priorities as APA president, the state of the opioid crisis, tech addiction, and the future of psychiatric care. Hi, Dr. Lavonis, and thank you for being here on the Insights in Psychiatry podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. And we're just going to dive right into it because you've done a lot of work with addiction medicine, and I want to just get a sense of where do we stand in the field uh, with addiction medicine? Pretty good, I would say. Uh, it's um, we're in a situation where, on one hand, the science has done tremendous uh, things for us. We have safe and effective medications to treat uh, our patients. We're delving more and more into the basic science of the addictive mm-hmm. process. So, uh, on, on that front, uh, addiction psychiatry, addiction medicine is skyrocketing. What we're not doing so well is uh, translating all this uh, research and, and all these findings and implementing these uh, uh, findings and all the tools that we have into everyday practice. Uh, and that is uh, where we're at right now. What is the stuck point? Why do you think that's happening? Some of it has to do with uh, some really outdated notions that uh, once uh, a person's addicted, uh, they're addicted for the rest of their lives and uh, there's nothing that can be done about it. Um, things of that sort that uh, are have totally been put aside and uh, we're far more hopeful uh, about uh, addiction as a treatable medical illness. So uh, that still lingers both uh, in the uh, medical profession as well as the general public. And are there any recent advances in the neurobiology of addiction that you find particularly exciting and hope to see um, impact treatment in the long run? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about the pleasure-reward pathways of the brain, and we're talking a lot about dopamine and about this, uh, uh, the, the fun part of, uh, of using any substances or behavioral addiction, for that matter. Uh, but these days, we are very much focusing on the dark side uh, of addiction, this uh, a chronic sense of discomfort, irritability, uh, angst, uh, restlessness that people feel with uh, chronic uh, uh, addiction and uh, a desperate attempt that they do to um, to counteract that by using uh, more drugs. So there's that uh, part of the science uh, that focuses on the um, uh, what uh, is often called hyperkatifia. Hyperkatifia, a Greek word meaning uh, super uh, depressed or super dis- uh, uncomfortable or uh, chronically uh, feeling a sense of malaise. And uh, that uh, is very much connected to our memories, it's very much connected to our emotions, and to traumatic experiences, which is something that is becoming more and more the focus of attention in uh, in research. Yeah, so the, so the question is, it sounds like you're kind of talking about how um, maybe depression, anxiety, malaise has an impact on addiction. Um, is that your understanding about the the common root, um, or is there also that people maybe with an unremarkable mental health history can get involved um, with an addiction, and then that then further impacts their mental health? I'm so glad you asked this question, Thea. Uh, it's all three. 
sometimes depression, anxiety, trauma, all kinds of, of uh, mental uh, disorders can very well lead to uh, addiction in uh, a classic self-medication process. Other times, it's uh, the other way around, where, let's say, chronic use of alcohol can very well result in depressive disorders and anxiety disorders. And uh, sometimes it's a third variable, it's a third possibility where the addiction and the other mental condition have developed separately and they're truly co-occurring and they're showing up uh, at the same person. The bottom line here is that whether depression leads to addiction, addiction leads to depression, or there are two processes that they are developing uh, simultaneously and in parallel with one another, the treatment seems to be very, very similar. We treat both the addiction and the other mental illness, and we don't spend that much time trying to figure out which one came first. So we're less concerned with what came first, but it sounds like it's it's important to understand how they impact each other in a non-reductive way. And is that part of the treatment, too, to understand the relationship? I would say that they... If uh, the patient is particularly concerned about the connection between the two, absolutely, this is part of the psychotherapeutic process. Uh, we can very well discuss um, uh, these matters with, with the patient. But at the end of the day, the mental illness needs its own treatment, med- medications if needed, psychotherapy if needed, uh, addiction needs its own uh, treatment. We have um, incredibly safe and effective medications for, let's say, opioid use disorder. Tobacco use disorder, we do have some medications for alcohol use disorder, uh, and these need to be used uh, across the board, whether the patient also works on other problems that they may have with their lives or not. And, you know, I think everyone's really excited about the potential psychedelic treatments and their impact on mental health, specifically depression, alcohol use disorder. What are your thoughts about psychedelic medicine? I'm very enthusiastic as well, and I think that uh, the data are very promising. I think it's uh, absolutely wonderful work that is being done both in the United States and Europe. Uh, and uh, I have every reason to be uh, quite optimistic about uh, the psychedelics. However, we haven't crossed all our T's, we haven't dotted all our I's, uh, we haven't uh, figured out the long-term uh, potential, addictive potential or other consequences of this uh, uh, psychedelics. We haven't... Uh, uh, elucidated the, the entire uh, situation with drug-drug interactions, pregnancy, uh, kidney function, liver function, on and on and on. So uh, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, uh, and the idea of having mom and pop uh, shops uh, pushing uh, psychedelics uh, uh, in uh, our neighborhoods is uh, certainly not a good yeah. idea. Yeah, and it seems like the pace with which psychedelic medicine and research is happening, um, and again, moving to being something that a a prescriber or a a clinician could prescribe, it seems that there's going to be a longer delay. And it it kind of, I I know for some of my patients, they're connecting with people who are, um, you know, maybe non, you know, doing it kind of on their own. They're finding it, not that they're finding it on the street, but they're finding uh, maybe alternative methods or providers who are excited about the research and maybe using it. What are your thoughts there? I think that we need to slow down this train. I think that we should leave it to the researchers and uh, for the uh, whole uh, very well established uh, uh, process of uh, um, having a medication approved for a particular indication, the way that we're doing now, 
take its course. Um, and I think it's uh, it, it is possible to bypass this uh, whole FDA process and try to uh, push these uh, agents, which have tremendous potential. Um, I have to keep on emphasizing this part, and the data are very, uh, you know, uh, optimistic. But uh, we need to let the process take its course. We have been burned before. We have been burned before with all kinds of agents that uh, seemed uh, great, and then uh, they uh, seem to be. Uh, they end up not being as uh, uh, originally advertised. So let's uh, slow down a bit. Yeah, here. it seems like a lot of the research that's even coming out about cannabis is less than promising with regard to its ability to help, um, you know, depression, anxiety, et cetera. What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. I would say that cannabis is probably going in the opposite direction of the psychedelics. The more uh, the data are putting in, the more concerned we become. Uh, we become concerned about the connection between cannabis and psychosis. A major Danish uh, study uh, came out a few months ago that uh, is quite alarming about uh, that connection. Uh, we're very concerned about uh, anxiety, uh, panic disorder uh, with uh, cannabis. And um, let's not forget that the number one reason why people uh, do use cannabis is uh, to medicate uh, a cannabis withdrawal syndrome. So from a, from a patient's perspective, it, it is very difficult to, to see that something that is so effective in relieving anxiety can possibly be bad, bad yeah. for you. From an addiction psychiatrist perspective, this is absolutely nothing new. Uh, we've been having patients come to our offices uh, for the longest time. Uh, Doc, I'm anxious. I take my Xanax. I'm not anxious mm -hmm. anymore. Why on earth don't you prescribe it for me? You must be a very mean person not to give me the one mm -hmm. thing that I know will certainly relieve my anxiety. This is uh, <laughs> something that is uh, bread and butter in addiction psychiatry. So, uh, you know, we, we have been used to that kind of idea. So in talking about some of the long-term um, implications, uh, you know, in addiction medicine, we're at least a decade into the opioid crisis, um, and a number of annual deaths remain near all-time highs. In your opinion, what's needed, um, and what you know, do we need to do to drive those numbers down and save lives? Yeah, um, very, very recently, I would say over the past uh, twelve months, we've been having a glimpse of hope. Uh, some of the mortality uh, has slowed down uh, in the United States. And uh, from May of 2022 to May of 2023, we've seen uh, a 0.8% decrease in mortality uh, across the nation. So uh, this is not true across the board. There are several states in the West, uh, uh, in the South, that still uh, are recording increases in uh, mortality to, to opioids. But it seems that uh, the huge increase that we experienced during the, the height of the pandemic has plateaued and may be actually showing um, a small decrease right now. We haven't fully understood what drove this uh, improvement, but we cannot help thinking that the efforts that we've made with the two major medications, naloxone and buprenorphine, played a major role here. Naloxone for reversal of um, uh, an overdose for acute uh, severe opioid intoxication, and uh, buprenorphine for the long-term treatment of opioid use disorder. Uh, in combination, these two uh, tried and true interventions in opioid use disorder that we've known about for the longest time, but we finally have been uh, 
somewhat able to implement uh, to uh, and give to our patients have made a difference. And so your is your goal that more people will know how to utilize these medications um, and how to help people, or is it a kind of a population health um, rollout that you hope for? It is, it is. And the, the major message there is that uh, they are simple medications. Uh, one of the words that uh, uh, irks me the, the most is the word uh, complex, mm-hmm. that addiction is so complex that uh, you know p- people uh, give up. Uh, it is not that complex. Uh, you see somebody who uh, was overdosing on the street. If you have happen to have with you the intranasal uh, spray, actually two of them is what's needed these days because of fentanyl and uh, the fentanyl analogs that uh, are so powerful. So you need to carry with you two intranasal uh, sprays, and you just squirt it up the the person's nose, and you save a life. Uh, it's uh, you don't need uh, that extensive training about it. Uh, you just read the, the instructions on the pamphlet and uh, you can just save a life. In a somewhat similar fashion, buprenorphine, um, primary care physicians, uh, OBGYNs, uh, pediatricians, uh, internists, uh, anybody can just uh, prescribe buprenorphine to, to a patient. As, you know, uh, it comes in very simple doses. Uh, it's a sublingual medication. Now we do have also a once a month uh, preparation, which is a uh, subcutaneous. Uh, it's just a very straightforward, simple, safe uh, treatment that uh, has, I don't know, in my mind, very little complexity, especially when I compare it with other treatments uh, in medicine that are far, far more complex than uh, prescribing buprenorphine to someone. And do you think that maybe is what keeps addiction stigmatized, you know, that it's so complex and we'll never understand and kind of, you know, like you said, can't be fixed, don't touch it? Um, do you think that leads to some of those complications? I, I think so. I, I think that uh, a lot of uh, physicians uh, fully recognize how central addiction is to uh, uh, the well-being of their patients. Uh, but somehow they feel that it's something outside their scope of uh, practice. Uh, things like uh, poverty and uh, war come mm-hmm. to mind. Uh, things that people... Uh, um, appreciate as major factors in uh, people's uh, uh, health and illness, but uh, they're outside the doctor's office. They're too big. They're too complex. They're just uh, too much. And and that's what we're trying to to, to educate people about, that um, addiction is not that complex. It's uh, pretty straightforward. Uh-huh. You assess, you diagnose, you treat. Boom, done. Yeah, and it seems like that's a change um, and maybe how it was looked at in the past, and like you said, making it um, more the treatment more accessible to both providers and uh, patients. Are there other priorities you have in educating clinicians about addiction? Things that you wish more um, clinicians would be aware of? Yes, um, certainly. I will, we look at uh, uh, vaping. We had a whole campaign about the detrimental effects of vaping. Uh, we are right now in the midst of, of a campaign about alcohol as it coincides with the, the holidays, which is a particularly uh, risky time for, uh, for our patients uh, who, uh, who use alcohol. But also uh, coming up, we have a campaign on the technological addictions. I would say that uh, um, alcohol, opioids, tobacco, vaping are things that at least they are somewhat in the, um, uh, uh, the horizon of uh, most uh, 
mental health providers and, and uh, physicians in general. But uh, technological addictions, things like uh, being addicted to internet gaming, cyber sex, social media, uh, are things that are emerging right now. There are quite a lot of data to support the idea that uh, these are medical conditions, uh, but the majority of people don't appreciate them as such. I, I know that I've heard clinicians say, if you throw the word addiction kind of haphazardly on everything, it almost waters it down. Um, do, but it sounds like you're saying like there are real ways to measure technological addiction, um, obviously alcohol, you know, use disorder. But with the technological addiction, you know, what actually constitutes it you know, as, a, as a full addiction? Yes. I, I, and I, I share the concern about uh, let's not medicalize uh, everything that happens in our everyday lives. I, I, I'm fully in support of that. And let's be very cautious about what we call a medical illness and what we don't. Um, for example, I mentioned uh, social media. Uh, the vast majority of people engage with social media one way uh, or another. Only a very small number of people, maybe 3%, maybe 5% at the most, will actually cross the line into uh, a frank uh, medical condition of uh, an addictive disorder. Uh, and uh, crossing the line is probably something that uh, I'm being asked about more than anything else. Uh, what uh, makes uh, something pathological? versus a part of um, normal, everyday uh, fray. Uh, and the good news there is that we do have some pretty good criteria. Uh, the criteria are similar across the board. Um, we borrow very heavily from substance use disorders, and uh, we do feel that uh, the uh, brain processes that dictate uh, addiction with substances is very, very similar to the uh, addictive processes uh, responsible for the technological addictions. So we do use those uh, uh, tried and true criteria that we have for substance use disorders. We modify them, of course, some for the uh, technological addictions. And we have found that this is a pretty good way to go uh, about establishing a diagnosis of a technological addiction. Yeah, and I, um, I don't know if you've heard about that the recent lawsuit, I think it's across states, um, you know, suing these social media companies saying that they are, you know, using certain kinds of reinforcers, behavioral reinforcers on social media to get, you know, children and teens um, addicted, which, you know, in some ways a great business model for them. Um, but what are some of your thoughts about, you know, companies kind of uh, being a part of, of the kind of addiction process and problem? Well, I, I cannot go into the legalities of, of, of these cases, of course. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I can say that we have seen this movie before in some different version uh, with the tobacco industry. Uh, very well-known fact that the tobacco industries uh, hired chemists with the explicit task of uh, finding the perfect combination of chemicals in cigarettes to maximize the addictiveness of their products. So this uh, idea of using psychologists and uh, psychological expertise to maximize the addictiveness of, uh, I don't know, you know, any kind of uh, internet uh, game uh, is not um, uh, something that uh, is novel to us. And knowing that, do you think there are policy ideas um, that should be used to limit the availability or addictiveness of certain technologies to certain age groups? 
given that the majority of our young uh, uh, of, of youth uh, engage in social media and also engage in internet uh, gaming and uh, of course uh, massively uh, texting and uh, uh, all kinds of other uh, technologies uh, i'm not so sure that uh, uh, any kind of uh, age limit would be uh, easily uh, uh, enforceable uh, on the other hand uh, having frank conversations in families with children about uh, the risks of uh, of some of these uh, technologies and how it can get to the to the extreme is uh, quite helpful let me just uh, make another point here both patients and families uh, sometimes are very quick to embrace a technological addiction while something very, very different may be happening. Uh, what I'm saying here is uh, parents uh, see the kid uh, playing video games all day. Uh, meanwhile, the kid also may be uh, hearing some voices and may start having some delusional thinking. And it's easier for both the patient and the families to embrace uh, a technological addiction as explanation of what is happening with a kid rather than something that be much more, uh, uh, let's say, uh, aligned with the psychotic disorders. So uh, my recommendation there to both uh, parents and uh, patients is that if you think that you may be crossing the line towards uh, a medical condition, absolutely get some professional help because there may be something else that may be happening uh, here something that we have very safe and effective uh, treatments for and it would be a huge shame to uh, uh, misdiagnose something that uh, we could very uh, well address and, and treat. And, and for providers, say, who are even new to this term of uh, technological addiction, what should they be looking for or assessing? Like, again, where is that line between we all use social media and, and uh, technology many hours of the day? Uh, what is the kind of, what are some of the criteria? Is it functioning? Is it mood? What should um, providers be looking for to kind of assess technological addiction? All right. Three major spheres that they, they, they need to look at. The first one is a physiological aspect of addiction, meaning uh, tolerance, like people using more and more of the technology in order to achieve the same mm -hmm. effect. Uh, withdrawal, uh, if they abruptly stop uh, uh, playing the video game or, or engaging in the social media, uh, they get dysphoric, uh, have tantrums in children, uh, that they get some kind of a withdrawal syndrome from it. So that would be like a physiological component of, uh, of the assessment. The second sphere would be an internal preoccupation that the person constantly lives with uh, this uh, idea that uh, they spend tremendous amounts of time uh, engaging with a particular technology and maybe using the technology as self-medication against uh, depression or, or anxiety. Like in, in their head, they, they, there's very little space for anything else but that particular technology that they may be addicted to. And the third sphere is um, the uh, external consequences. Uh, if you see uh, the kids' grades uh, going south, uh, if a person, if it's an adult, uh, start... Uh, missing days at work, uh, being late at work, not uh, fulfilling their responsibilities, their interpersonal relations uh, are suffering, uh, that kind of uh, have legal issues or medical consequences, insomnia being, of course, a major one uh, with technological uh, addictions. 
So these are the, will be the external consequences of uh, the behavior. So physiological dependence, internal preoccupation, external consequences, the three major spheres of evaluation. I want to add to that my favorite criterion, which is um, continued use despite knowledge of adverse mm -hmm. consequences. Continued use despite knowledge of adverse consequences. Doc, I know it's bad for me. I really know so, but I cannot help myself. That is um, quite a strong telltale that there may be a problem mm -hmm. here. Yeah, and for something like technological addiction, we can't use something like naloxone. So would you recommend more um, you know, behaviorally focused treatments for this type of addiction? Yes, we do have uh, both cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing have been studied for several technological addictions and have been effective. But also, let's not forget a good evaluation for co-occurring psychiatric disorders, for comorbid psychiatric disorders. A lot of our patients with technological addictions also have uh, uh, depression, um, anxiety, ADHD, is uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is quite common among uh, people who uh, play um, uh, internet games excessively. So a good evaluation for other psychiatric disorders that may very well need treatment independent of the technological addiction uh, is uh, is in order mm -hmm. here. Yeah, and maybe, uh, again, a medication like an SRI or something else that could treat maybe the core of the problem like depression or anxiety. Um, and I've seen that work with many of my patients as well. Um, I do want to go back for one second when we were talking about um, opiate addiction. And I remember you said something on uh, the SiriusXM show that was really powerful. And I think it might be good and important for listeners to know. But you were talking about how people with opiate use disorder uh, might not need a cognitive behavioral therapy initially. That, um, And I, I would love for you to share that data with our listeners. I think it is uh, powerful um, and maybe not what a lot of clinicians automatically believe. There are some addictions for which uh, we only have uh, behavioral uh, treatments, uh, psychotherapies, uh, counseling, uh, powerful psychosocial treatments, but no medications. Of course, the stimulants like cocaine and crystal methamphetamine come to mind. There are other uh, disorders for which we know that the combination of medications with psychosocial supports, mutual help uh, uh, involvement, and things like uh, alcohol use disorder are the, the more, one of the most ways, effective ways to go about treatment. And then there are, there's opioid use disorder and tobacco use disorder where medication is a must. There are data from uh, Yale University, David Filene's uh, group and other groups that have shown that adding expert cognitive behavioral therapy to uh, simply prescribing buprenorphine to, to patient does not really add all that much to the success of the treatment. Of course, I offer it for my patients. I think that uh, I'm a psychiatrist, you know, I, I, I am a psychiatrist. And uh, I, of course, uh, I love talking to people and the counseling psychotherapy is so much part of uh, who I am as a physician. So I do offer that to my patients. But the data really show that the primary, the really the, the major game changer in the treatment of a patient with opioid use disorder is medication. Mm -hmm. So you can do all the psychotherapy and the counseling in the world you want, but unless you have buprenorphine on board, the chances that your patient is going to do well uh, do not look very good. And it sounds like even as an adjunctive, it didn't make much of a difference. 
And so I guess from a mechanistic yes, perspective, what does that make you wonder? That it's um, a very um, biologically driven uh, uh, illness. Uh, uh, of course, we, we, these days we don't make that much of a distinction between uh, the mind and the body. We very much uh, appreciate how integral they are to one another, how very well connected they were one another. But when it comes to opioid use disorder, maybe one way to think about it that could be helpful to uh, providers, to clinicians, is that it's a very biologically driven illness that does need its uh, medication for the person to succeed. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it sounds like this goes along with your theme of making addiction less complex. Um, And I think most providers would love more simple uh, than more complex. So as much as it might be surprising, it sounds like it it, it could be a really helpful tool or helpful, um, you know, data point and understanding for clinicians as well. Yes. And, um, you know, just to, to switch gears a little bit, you're you're now almost halfway through your term as APA president. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, mission as APA president and um, what your plans are going forward? Yes. Um, we are at the cusp of uh, a sea change in uh, mental health uh, uh, in the United States, um, very much tied to the pandemic. Uh, we are switching from... Uh, as psychiatrists trying to uh, alert the world of the importance of uh, mental health to switching to the other side where the world is yelling at us, uh, we know that mental health is so important. Uh, Help us. uh, Do something about it. uh, Provide services, uh, education, support, all kinds of things that uh, we'd love to do, but we don't have enough people to uh, deliver these uh, treatments and support and education and counseling that we would like. So we are faced with a major workforce uh, issue, uh, which is even more severe for child and adolescent psychiatry. So we have devised new ways of delivering this care. Uh, We very much support the collaborative model of uh, mental health uh, uh, services delivery where uh, we partner with uh, our uh, physicians in other specialties, uh, OBGYN, uh, pediatrics, uh, family medicine, internal medicine, as well as uh, our partners in uh, mental health uh, professions outside of medicine, uh, psychologists and social workers, uh, counselors, and clergy uh, as well. So it is a very uh, elaborate and quite effective model of partnership between psychiatry and other parts of medicine as well as other parts of um, mental health. And so is your hope that more psychiatrists and psychiatry and social workers, counselors, psychologists are integrated in schools, hospitals, workplaces? Um, Because I think that's what you're saying people are asking for too. You know, they think the stigma around mental health is lifting. Everyone wants to talk about it. They, you know, they want it, but we can't keep up. So it sounds like is the goal to kind of have psychiatry more integrated in our world um, and in, you know, again, the workplace, schools, et cetera. Yes, it's twofold, actually. One is to increase the number of psychiatrists that we have, and we have been quite successful in pushing for more residency slots for our medical students who, uh, in my world here at uh, Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, uh, when I first came here 10 years ago, uh, we had only a handful of medical students every year uh, wanting to do psychiatry. In 2023, we have uh, dozens, literally, of uh, medical students wanting to go into psychiatry. 
and we do not have enough slots to um, to actually accommodate them. So uh, we are working very much with the government, both local and, and uh, federal government, to increase the number of uh, residency slots for our medical students, residency slots in psychiatry and child psychiatry, but primarily psychiatry, so that we can uh, respond to that need. And the second part is this uh, collaborative model uh, that the American Psychiatric Association has uh, put together that it does involve uh, all kinds of uh, people in partnership with us to address uh, the mental health needs uh, of, um, of our fellow citizens. And if someone's listening and they are, you know, maybe even thinking about going into psychiatry, what's, uh, what is exciting about being part of the field right now and, and you know, being, being part of what's happening um, in psychiatry? I, I have a very simple uh, recommendation for that. Come to our annual meeting. <laughs> uh, every May, uh, tens of thousands of psychiatrists come together. Uh, this year is going to be in New York City, uh, the first week in May. I have no problem advertising our meeting in May. Uh, because if you're thinking about uh, psychiatry as a, as a career, if you're an undergraduate or if you're a medical student and you're thinking that maybe this is uh, for me, come to our meeting. It's uh, actually free for medical students and uh, get the vibe. See uh, the amazing programming, of course, that we're going to have, but also check out the vibe of the specialty. Is this uh, what I would like to be part of professionally for the rest of my career, for the rest of uh, my productive years? So uh, it's an identity issue. If you really uh, uh, like to be a psychiatrist, if you think that uh, the mind and the medical uh, aspects of uh, uh, mental illness are so uh, um, part of what you would like to assess, diagnose, and treat, by all means, I think that this may be for you. Um, and you talked a lot about you know, the goals you have in the APA and um, in addiction medicine. Just for our final question, anything, you know, any kind of pipe dream or, or something that you hope for the future uh, to see um, in the next 10 years in psychiatry? Well, I would like to see an integration of uh, diagnosis, treatments, and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done incredible strides in diagnosis. Everybody knows about the DSM-5, the DSM-5-TR, more specifically, that came out last year. And uh, I don't think there's anyone in the world of uh, medicine or uh, uh, mental health, more specifically, who doesn't know about the DSM. Uh, so we've done a great job uh, with diagnosis. We've done an amazing job with treatment recommendations. We have uh, all these guidelines, how to treat different disorders. And we are now uh, working very hard with our registry into uh, checking out the outcomes, the, uh, the outcomes from our patients, how well they, they're doing and how they're progressing towards their, uh, their treatments. So um, there may very well be uh, in the near future a way to combine um, diagnosis, treatments, and outcomes uh, so that we can advance uh, our research and be even more confident about our diagnostic acumen as well as our treatment recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so answering the call of this mental health crisis with um, this combination of efforts that will hopefully change outcomes um, and integrate mental health into our everyday lives. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Petros. We really appreciate it. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was great talking with you. Thanks so much again for that conversation, Dr. Lavonis. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to NYU Langone Insights on Psychiatry on your podcast app. Your support helps us bring you to the frontiers of psychiatry. Thank you. For the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Langone, I'm Dr. Thea Gallagher. See you next time.